Good morning. The sermon sermon passage is a portion of Paul's letter to Titus, enumerated as chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is our sermon passage this morning. Thank you, Nathan. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, this morning we come before you in the name of Jesus, and we come asking that you would send your Spirit to teach us and to convict us and to guide us and to reshape us and to fill us with faith and hope and love. Lord, I pray you would take these words that you have spoken and given to us and you would cause them to be heard and believed and cause us to be changed by them. And not as some mere empty words. Lord, I earnestly pray that you would help me speak your truth this morning. Help me to allow your people to hear you speak and to be moved by your spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, it's so good to see you all this morning. If you haven't already, take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Titus chapter 1 where Nathan just read for us. Here at Redeemer, we are working our way through the book of Titus. And we've called this series, Being Church. And what we know is that the book of Titus was written by a man named Paul to a man named Titus who was on an island called Crete. And the purpose of the letter was to help and formulate and posture these churches to be faithful to Jesus. Paul wanted new churches to be faithful to Jesus. Now, we're not on Crete. We're in Hendersonville. We're not really a new church. We're a church, but we're studying Titus because we want to posture ourselves to be faithful to the Lord, to know him, to love him, 
to serve him, to be used by him. This is our earnest desire. And so today's passage pushes us in that way by saying this. The truth of God's saving grace is worth defending. Let me even say that more. Getting the truth of God's saving grace wrong is eternally dangerous. And ultimately, I believe what's going on in these verses, which Nathan just read for us, is Paul is shouting, church, protect the gospel. Protect the truth of God's saving grace because if you don't, it will shipwreck you. The truth is worth defending. That's the point for today. Therefore, man, we get some strong language. Insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers must be silenced, upsetting whole families. Rebuke them sharply. Defiled, unbelieving, impure. Deny God by their works, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. I mean, teenagers, how many of you want to come home to that? Parents, I know some of you want to say it, but we digress. Um, The point of the terse language is to elevate the cost of what's at stake. Getting the truth right and living the truth rightly is of vital importance to the health and life and future and ministry of the church and of the Christian. And Paul's driving that home deeply. So first point, if you want to take notes, the work of truth, the work of truth. Um, So this is the second time I've preached this today. And if you're visiting, I'm just going to give a little like cautionary warning. Like this is going to go a little sweaty, screamy revivalist preacher today. Like I'm going to get worked up. It's going to happen most likely. And I don't do that every Sunday. Maybe come back next week. First point, the work of truth. Paul is concerned that the truth of God's saving gospel prevail among the Christians on Crete. And I just simply would say, like, it's not wrong of us. Everywhere Paul's concerned about the Christians on Crete to just insert ourselves in there. He's concerned about Christians in Hendersonville. Not only Christians in Hendersonville, he's concerned about Redeemer Church, okay? So I'm not aiming arrows at other churches in this community. I'm not aiming arrows at other traditions. I'm not aiming arrows at other churches around the world. Like like Paul would be concerned that Redeemer would fight for the truth of the gospel so that Redeemer would be faithful to the Lord. So let's look within. So much so that when it says the Cretans are 
liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Let's put ourselves in there too, because apart from the Lord's grace, that's what we are, which really elevates the point of the passage. Paul's concerned that the truth of God's saving gospel prevail among the Christians on Crete, which I'm saying means he's concerned that it prevail among us. As we look at this work of truth, there's a vitally important point for us to see in the passage, and it's this. Faith and truth work together. Faith and truth work together. Now, before I start defining terms and throwing words around and you think that I'm pushing like seminary on you, which is not a bad thing, I just want you to see that that's actually what's being said here. So look at verse 13. In the middle, therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So what's Paul concerned about? That the Cretans would be what? Sound in the faith. Verse 14. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Now, you were taught in English class not to use double negatives. Paul don't care what you were taught in English. He uses double negatives all the time. But two negatives do, as you learned in math class, make a positive. So when he says... Not devoting yourself to untruth. What he means is devote yourself to truth. So what's the connection there in 13 and 14? The path to faith and faithfulness is through truth and truthfulness. Paul's putting them together. Not only does he put them together there in verse 13 and 14. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of of, of the chapter. He puts them together together. There as well. Paul, this is chapter 1, verse 1. A servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So Paul's concerned about their faith and their knowledge of the truth. So what's he putting together? Our faith and our knowledge of the truth work together. And if you really want to have fun, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. So he's also saying that faith is built upon truth, which produces godliness, which is the only path to hope. But I can't preach all that in one sermon. But it goes together. Paul is saying that faith and truth work together. Which means this. We often think of faith as an an antonym, as a opposite of truth. Truth is what I know. Faith is just kind of a blind leap when I don't know. Yeah, good, I like that. I'm getting my head. But, But often in the world out there, people talk of faith as, well, yeah, you just gotta have blind trust. You just kind of have to have blind trust. But in the scripture, Faith is always built on something. It's built on who God is and what God has revealed. This tells us that 
Faith is not absolute knowledge. There are things that we don't know, but faith is always built upon, founded upon, and resting upon who God is and what God has revealed about himself. That is truth. So if we tear out the bedrock of truth, guess what crumbles? Our faith. If we build up the bedrock of truth, the the intent of it is that faith would flourish Like, the more I know, the more I trust. The more I know about God and his word and his ways, the less I trust myself and the less I trust my certainty and the more I trust the Lord and all the gray stuff and all the undefined stuff. Faith and truth work together. So that pushes us toward a question. What is truth? What is truth? Ultimately, truth with the capital T, truth that is always right and always unchanging, is what God has revealed about himself and his world. Ultimately, God is truth. Ultimately, what God has revealed about himself and about his world and how to live as his people is what is truth. Deuteronomy 29.29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are some things that the Lord has not Revealed. But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of his law. What the Lord has revealed is true, is right, is good, and is unchanging. Another example, I'm really trying to push Bible in here because I'm going to push all of us to an uncomfortable place here in a minute, and I want you to see that it's the Lord pushing you and not me, okay? All right, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. So if you put those two things together, the Lord has revealed truth and he has graciously given it to us in his word. This is truth to be heard and received and believed and we cling to it and we don't give up on it because giving up on it is giving up on the bedrock upon which our faith stands. If you wondered last week in verses 5 through 9 when we talked about raising up spiritual leaders in the church, why was that such a big deal to Paul? Why did that come first? Chapter 1, verse 9 of Titus, so that the trustworthy word as taught would hold firm. 
Paul was vitally concerned that the truth of God hold firm in the church of God. Okay. So this pushes us to the end of this point, the work of the truth. Truth matters to faith, and truth matters to faithfulness. So I have three kind of implications for us. Number one, know the truth. We must know the truth, which means go to the Lord in his word and let his truth rewrite all other truths with a little t. I'm going to save some time, but you know that overused sermon illustration about um, the secret service and the way that you tell fake money from real money is to study the real money? Everybody know that illustration? You've heard it used like 15 too many times. It applies right here, right? Like you know the truth by studying the truth. Second, this is where we're all going to get a little uncomfortable. Let's have fun with it, okay? Christians, we must learn to discern the difference between what I'm going to call truth with a big T and truth with a little t. Meaning, everything that we think is right is not necessarily God's truth. Meaning that Christians are not always right about everything. Meaning that the quote-unquote Christian position on fill-in-the-blank isn't always right. What's right and what's true is what God has revealed. I'm calling that truth with a capital T. And then we take truth with a capital T and we say, what do I do in this realm? And what do I do in this realm? And if you're, watching, if you're listening online, you need to watch because I'm moving. Like, what? And the further we get away from truth with a capital T, we might land on a conviction, but it's truth with a little t. You can't put God's name on it. Everybody tracking with me here? Christians, we have a major problem. We call every conviction truth with a capital T. And we treat all of our convictions as if they can't be questioned because to question them is to question God. And one of the best things that could happen for our love, our peace, and our unity in the church, and for our witness in the world, and on Facebook, and Instagram, and Twitter, and Snapchat, and whatever else all you kids are using, would be for us to distinguish between God has spoken and Jamie thinks, or God has spoken, therefore it seems best if I do the following. And I think me and you and all of us are guilty of pulling too much into the category of truth with a capital T. Another way of saying this is, I think there are some things we need to believe more and double and triple and quadruple down on them. That's the things God's revealed. And there's a whole lot of other things that we hold just as white-knuckled and tight that we just need to let go of and say, maybe I don't know as much as I think I know. And maybe the Lord hasn't fully revealed as much as I think that he has. Now, some of you are very uncomfortable. Some of you are like, oh no, is this guy like lost his mind and become one of those squishy liberals that doesn't believe anything? I would have said you lost your mind, but I've actually been accused of that in the last year, just in case you were wondering. 
So I want to I push hard, very hard, that this distinction between what I'm calling truth with a capital T and truth with a little t is a very biblical. It's very biblical. I'm going to push hard, okay? So if I'm making you uncomfortable, three things for you to read. Mark 7, Matthew 15, James 1. I was uncomfortable earlier this week, by the way. We all got to work our way there, okay? Mark 7, Matthew 15, James 1. Here's what Mark 7 and Matthew 15, they're both Jesus teaching. It's the same story recounted in different tellings. And Jesus rebukes the religious leaders for failing to distinguish between the law of God and the traditions of man. And I'm just here to tell you, Jesus, if he were to pop up here in Redeemer, might do the same thing. And I might be the guiltiest person here, okay? If not you, we'll figure it out later, okay? I'm just telling you, our Lord introduced this thought category of distinguishing between the law of God and the traditions of man. And I just want to push you. When you hear defend the truth, to then say, is this thing that I am clinging to and prone to defend actual truth of the Lord? Or is it tradition of man. And if it's tradition of man, which is maybe a truth thought about, reasoned with, and applied, it's okay for you to believe it, but you can't cling to it the same way you cling to the very things the Lord has said. Second is James. So Mark 7, Matthew 15, push the same reality. The second is James 1. And I believe this is where we get a thought category for what we're talking about. James chapter 1, verse 5 says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. What's wisdom? Wisdom is truth received and reasoned with and brought to bear on a real-life situation. The passage says the Lord will help us with wisdom. He'll help us move there. So I I am pushing us to say, let's distinguish between truth with a big T and truth with a little T. So my wife and I were talking this morning and I asked her to pray for me. And she was like, well, you're going to give an example of this, right? And I was like, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to give an example of this because I want to have a job tomorrow. So, I'm going to give an example. Because usually my wife is right. And if I get fired, I'd I'd love if you guys would bring my family some meals. Um, If I get tarred and feathered or um, stoned, would you take care of my family? Um, But I'm going to give an example. I'm going to give several. Truth with a capital T. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's truth. To deny that there is the Lord, the God of Israel, who is the one God who is worthy of all praise and desires our obedience to him is to deny truth. And if you're denying that, then you're not doing scripture applied. You are not living wisely. But if you can take that and live it out, then that can be wisdom, 
okay? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. We cannot deny that. There is no other way to know God and to belong to God except through Jesus. So if you can take that and you can live that out, then you're living in wisdom. But if you deny that, you're denying truth with a T, and Paul would say, defend it. Defend it. Okay. Third, this gets to the modern situation. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. This, two things, is the greatest commandment. On these two things hinge the whole law. That's truth with a T. We can't undo that. But do you know what the last 18 months have showed us? Shown us, love your neighbor as yourself is a difficult conundrum in real life. How do I figure out how to do it? And, and here's what's gone wrong. We say, love your neighbor as yourself, therefore, 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 this is what God requires. And if you don't stand here with me, you're wrong and you're in sin. And I think the church could have a whole lot healthier and holier dialogue and minister to the community a whole lot more if we would say, here we stand, love the Lord and love your neighbor as yourself. And now some of us have a hard time figuring out what it looks like exactly to love your neighbor in this moment. But what we're all trying to do is love our neighbor. You see, distinction promotes dialogue and it promotes unity and it promotes agreement even if we disagree because we're all trying to love our neighbor. But we're too busy bombing each other with hand grenades because Eight therefores away, we feel like we're 16 therefores away in different directions. Like, I'm not trying to read modern day life into the text. I'm telling you that I have feared for a week to the point of shaking at times that this sermon about defending the truth would cause all y'all to go home and double down more on social media. I'm right, you're wrong, to heck with you. And what I hope it produces is, oh, a lot of my convictions are wisdom. They're not truth. And it's okay if we have differing applications of the truth. We have to remain committed to the truth. So as I said earlier, friends, I love you. I'm not angry. I just care. And... I think there's a few things we need to believe more deeply and cling to them like life and death matters. And there's a whole lot of other things we need to let go of. Maybe not give up on, but just recognize that God hasn't said, thus says the Lord, about everything that Jamie Mosley thinks is right. You know how you could train wreck Redeemer? Make Redeemer in the image of everything that Jamie Mosley thinks is right. Because we're supposed to image the Lord, not me. We're supposed to image his word and his gospel. Okay. Okay, we got to go. Um, know the truth. Know the difference between truth and wisdom or truth with the big T and truth with the little T. And then fight for the truth. 
Basically what I'm saying is some of us love being defenders of truth. and We love pointing out error and pounding our chest and saying, we have the truth, right? You know those people. You know them. Be humbled and ask the question, is it God's truth or is it man's opinion? And after you prayerfully do that hard work, then defend the truth. Then defend the truth. And now we get to the hard stuff of the passage. Silence them, verse 11. By the way, this is the second point, the defending of truth. Verse 11, silence them. Verse 13, sharply rebuke them. You see, Paul's not calling for soft, malleable, nice Christianity. He's just calling for what God has revealed. That's the distinction. And he says, if what God has revealed is being threatened, then the faith is being threatened. And if what God has revealed is being threatened, then your place in the kingdom is being threatened. The goal of the passage, verse 13, was that Titus would rebuke and silence the critics for the faith and the truth of the critics. And the goal of verse 9 is that Titus would raise up teachers of the truth for the faith and the truth of the entire congregation. But where God's truth is being mistaught and misused It must be fought for. Silence it and rebuke it. Okay, help help me understand what that looks like. Okay, here's what Paul says, or excuse me, what Paul says about those teaching error. He says, verse 16, they profess to know God, but they're not living like the children of God. Now, friends, we just got to pause for a minute say there is a category in the Bible for people who profess with their lips to know the Lord, but don't live like people who know the Lord. Then he says they're insubordinate, their talk is empty, they're deceptive, they're of the circumcision party, they're teaching for shameful gain, they're devoted to Jewish myths, they're devoted to those who turn away from God, they're detestable, they're disobedient, and they're unfit for any good work. What does Paul want to give to this error? Gospel and truth. That's what he wants to give them. Now, let me show you that in the passage because I'm not reading that in, but it's actually there. Most scholars studying this error believe that the teaching of the, the, the insubordinate, empty deceivers, okay, the teaching involved a lot of external do's and don'ts. The teaching involved a lot of external do's and don'ts. So they were teaching, well, if you belong to Jesus, you need to do this and do that and do this and do that and do this and do that and do this and do that. Hence, conversation like things about the circumcision party and Jewish myths. They're saying, hey, if you know Christ, it's all these other things that got to go with it so that you will be pure. And what does Paul say to that? Look at verse 15. To the, this is perplexing unless we understand this. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. What's Paul saying? He's saying, you don't get pure before the Lord from the outside in. 
You get pure before the Lord from the inside out. If you're declared pure, then what flows out will be pure. And if you remain unpure, remember all the Cretans are um, liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons? That's a foundation for where he's going because he's saying if you're not made pure, you're already impure. And what's going to flow out of you is impurity. So Christians, there is great biblical warrant here to ask yourself this question. What's flowing out of me? And what does that tell me about what's inside me? But guest, unbeliever, doubter, skeptic, Pharisee, true follower of Jesus, wherever you are when you came in here today, this is what you need to know. I just, God, wagged my finger at you. <sighs> Man. This is what we need to know. We can't make ourselves pure. Only Jesus can. But if Jesus makes us pure, it's not external law that purifies us, but we love God's law and pure things flow out of us. And if we see nothing but impurity, it doesn't matter what we do on the inside, the, on the outside, the inside's not going to be pure. Only Jesus makes us pure. So, why would Paul say, hold fast to the trustworthy word is taught? Give instruction in sound doctrine. Rebuke those who contradict it. Silence them. Rebuke them sharply. Why would he say that? Because they're threatening the very gospel faith of every Christian on Crete. Their teachings must not stand. This isn't about third and fourth level opinion. This is about the saving gospel of Jesus. Who is God? Who am I? How am I made right before the Lord? How are you made right before the Lord? What does the Lord require? What does the Lord desire? That's what's at stake here. And Paul says that truth is worth defending. Not only is it worth defending, it must be defended. But we got to defend. Titus 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 14, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What Jesus come to do? To free us and to purify us. That's what Paul says. We got to fight for that truth. We got to fight for it. And we got to cling to it. And we got to believe it. So, Christian, Here's the question for you today. 
Am I trusting in what Christ has done for me to cleanse me and purify me? Then do I see the fruit of Christ's purifying work beginning to work its way out into who I am? Am I guilty of teaching errors which undermine this truth that must be fought for. If you're with us today, you're visiting, you're exploring the faith, you wonder how you might fit, here's the answer. You're a Cretan just like I was, but Jesus saves Cretans. Look to him, believe in him, receive him, Accept him, and he will cleanse you and purify you and use you for his glory. So our Father and our God, we pray now that you would take these words which we have spoken and you would press them very deeply into our hearts and minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.